Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, we thank you that there is not a single person in this room who is here by accident. We thank you that we're here because you've brought us here. We thank you that you see us, every single one of us, in all of our beauty and in all of our brokenness, in all of our complexities. And we thank you that your response is to never move away from us in frustration or anger, or disappointment, but it is always to move towards us in love. Would you help us to believe that today? Help us to believe it, whether it's for the first time or the millionth time. Would you come and would you speak into our lives in such a way now that we would be changed, that we would be more like Christ, that we would become more of the people you've made us to be? We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Let me invite you to take your seats. It's always a really good feeling as a pastor, as a preacher, when the scripture is being read and you realize that not all of your sermon notes printed. So we're working off a computer this morning. Praise God for computers. Um, Amen. So for the last couple months, uh, we have actually been in a series, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel, and I've said this every week, that parable is just another word for stories. Jesus told lots of, his, uh, lots of stories, they, they were his, his primary uh, method of teaching, actually. And today we come to what is a very challenging parable. It's a very challenging parable. It's a story about a man 
who uh, mismanages his master's money. He does some shady things, and then he comes up with a scheme to get out of it. And then at the very end of this story that Jesus tells, he seems to be commended for his dishonesty. Jesus basically says, kind of here's the point of the parable, I want you to be like this guy. That's kind of a weird thing to say. That, let's just start there this morning. This is a, this is a challenging parable. Um, the first sentence of the very first commentary that I read this week said this. It said, this is one of Jesus' most difficult parables. And then the second, the second commentary that I read, the very first sentence said, this is the most difficult of all of Jesus' parables. And then another commentator I read said, this parable is incomprehensible. <laughs> now, let me just tell you, when you got to preach a sermon in a couple days on a passage, like these are not very helpful things to be reading. I've lost some sleep this week. I got some more gray hair this week. It's challenging. It's not just challenging. It's uh, this parable is often overlooked. You know, maybe you have been around church for a long time and you consider yourself pretty familiar with the Bible, but you've never heard someone preach a sermon on this parable. It's, it's overlooked. Uh, one commentator said, this is actually the most ignored of all of Jesus' parables, which makes sense because what do we do when we come to parts of the Bible that we don't really know what to do with? What do we do? We just kind of keep reading, Right? We move right past them. What in the world is this parable about? Why does Jesus tell this story? One of the things that I've said throughout this series is that the fact that Jesus tells so many stories is a hint to us of what God's goal in our lives actually is. Parables are what one, one person calls participatory theater. I love that phrase, participatory theater, because Stories, what do they do? They invite you in. They invite you to see yourself in the story. And you see, the reason that Jesus tells so many stories is because God's goal for your life is not just information. It is transformation. God is not just trying to get some truths into your head. He is trying to change every part of your life. He, he, wants, to he wants to transform how we care for our neighbor. And so rather than just saying, love your neighbor, what does he do? He tells a story about a man who falls into a ditch and another man who helps him. And Jesus wants to transform the way that we pray. So rather than saying just, well, pray more, he tells a story about a man who goes to visit his neighbor in the middle of the night. Jesus wants to transform how we understand God's love for us. So rather than just saying, God loves you all the time no matter what, he tells a story about a man who has two sons. And get this, Jesus wants to transform the way we relate to money. And so what does he do? He tells a story about a dishonest man who wastes his master's money. This is a parable about money. You know, when Chase said that at the beginning of confession, I was thinking, nobody's going to be left in this room when I get up to preach this sermon. We, should, we shouldn't have told people this. But you stayed, so I'm glad uh, to not be here by myself. That would be really sad with my computer. Uh, th listen, this is a parable about money, 
And Jesus makes that very clear at, at the very end in verse 13. And what I want to do this morning is I want to consider three ways that this parable seeks to transform the way we relate to money. Three ways. Jesus wants to change how we think about our money. He wants to change what we do with our money. And he wants to change how we feel about our money. Think, do, feel. So first, Jesus wants to change. He wants to transform how you and I think about our money. The first thing to note about this parable is who Jesus is talking to. Look at verse 1. It says that he told this story to his disciples. Jesus is talking to his followers. This is very important. Some of you got very uncomfortable when you heard that we're going to do a sermon on money. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're here, a friend invited you. Maybe you haven't been in a Christian church forever. And maybe the thing that really bugs you is when pastors start talking about money. Uh, the first thing that I want you to hear me say this morning is this, God doesn't want your money. God wants you. That is the starting point of Christianity. The starting point of Christianity, it is a living relationship with a living God. And before Jesus ever wants to transform how you think, act, or feel about your money, He wants to give you a transforming encounter with His love and grace. And everything that He says in this parable today is directed to people who have already experienced that. So if that's you, if, if you have experienced that, if you are a Christian, let me tell you, Jesus has some very challenging things for you in this passage and for me about how we think about money. Look again at verse 1. Jesus said there was a rich man whose manager, keyword, was accused of wasting his possessions. Now, in the first century, the first century was a lot like today. Wealthy people hired other people to manage their money and to manage their estate. So what did that mean? It meant that a manager couldn't do whatever he wanted to do with this money. It wasn't his. He didn't own it. His job was simply to invest it in, in a way that aligned with the desires of the person who was paying him. You know what he was? He was a steward. And in fact, that's actually what the word manager means in this passage. It comes from the Greek word oikonomos, which is really hard to say if you're from South Carolina. I practiced that word really hard this week. Oikonomos. It means steward. It's the same word, get this, it's the same word that Paul uses in Titus chapter 1 when he says that pastors are stewards of God's church. So people sometimes say to me, I really love your church. And I kind of laugh inside because I'm thinking, this isn't my church. I don't own this. This is not my deal. No, this is God's church. And as a pastor, you know, what are we called to do? We're called to be good stewards of the church. And so just think about this for just a moment. Jesus, he tells this story about money, to, to challenge the way that we think about money. And the very first main character in this story is a manager. It's a steward whose job is to manage someone else's money. And here's the point. Jesus is saying, if you are a Christian, your money is not your money. 
It does not belong to you. It belongs to God. And you are just a steward. And let me tell you, I mean, this is one of the most radical and, 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 and counterintuitive ways to, to how we think about money. We think, what do you mean it's not mine? I mean, I earned this. I worked hard for this. I went to school. I put in the hours. What do you mean this isn't mine? And listen, all those things are true. But how were you able to do all of those things? How were you able to go to school? How were you able to work hard? How were you able to put in the time? Well, number one, you exist. Think about that. You know, last time I checked, we can't really take credit for our entrance into the world, right? That just kind of happened to you. Number two, think about your circumstances. Maybe you grew up in a home that actually encouraged education. You had teachers that inspired you. You had access to good schools and to money to pay for them. You had connections with people who could open doors for you. You had good mentors in, in your professional development along the way. How much credit can you take for all of those things? See, we can never take as merely as much credit as we think for our money and our success. You know, Bill Gates, who's the founder of Microsoft, one of the richest men in the world, in 1968, Bill Gates went to one of the only high schools in the country that had a computer. 1968. I mean, most, most upper-level uh, graduate uh, institutions, they didn't even have computers in 1968. The, the only reason that Bill Gates' school had a computer was because he had a math teacher who was like, hey, I think these things are kind of, kind of be a big deal. So he raised $3,000 and he bought one for the school. And it was, it, the school he went to, it was a Lakeside High School. Now, it was at Lakeside, get this, that, that Bill Gates met Paul Allen, who was his co-founder with Microsoft. And together, the two of them became obsessed with this computer. Now, get this, here, here's some like pretty fascinating statistics. In 1968, there were roughly 303 million high school age people in the world. It's a lot of teenagers running around. And about 18 million, 303 million high school age people, about 18 million of those lived in the U.S. About 270,000 of those lived in Washington State. A little over 100,000 of those lived in Seattle, and only about 300 of them went to Lakeside High School. Bill Gates was one of 300 out of 303 million. So just kind of do the math here for a minute. That averages out to one out of every million high school age kids went to the school that had the money and the forward thinking to buy a computer. Bill Gates was smart. He was hardworking. He had a vision for the future. You know what else he had? He had a head start of about one in a million. And in fact, when he spoke at his high school's graduation, this is like back in 2005 or something, he said this. He said, if there had been no Lakeside, there would have been no Microsoft. 
Now, are you kidding me? I mean, if Bill Gates is saying, I can't take credit for all of my money and success and wealth, then do you really want to say you can take credit for all of yours? No. Let me tell you about Gates's uh, other friend. He had, they had a third friend, he and Paul Allen. This, this part of the story is often left out. This guy's name was Kent Evans. Uh, Kent Evans went to Lakeside with them. Bill Gates still says today that Kent Evans was, he was the smartest of all three of them. He said, we, we, would, we were always scheming about what we'd be doing for, uh, what we'd be doing five or six years in the future, the kind of impact we could have. We knew whatever it was that we would do it together. And even to this day, Bill Gates would say, if, if Kent Evans was, was alive, he would have been one of the co-founders of Microsoft. But it never happened. And here's why. Kent Evans died in a mountaineering accident before he finished high school. Every year, there are about three dozen mountaineering deaths in the U.S. The odds of being killed on a mountain when you're a high schooler are about one in a million. And so for Gates, it was one in a million success, and for Ken Evans, it was one in a million tragedy. And here's the point. Life is far too complex to say that money and success come down, comes down to your hard work and your individual choices and your efforts. It is far too complex to say that you can take credit for everything that you have made, because for every Bill Gates, there is a Kent Evans, someone who is just as smart, just as talented, just as capable, but who ends up on the other side of life's deck, or really even kind of more to the point of today. There's someone who, who uh, there are people who are just as talented as you, just as capable as you, but they're not born with the same opportunity as you. Talent is universal. Opportunity is not. And maybe you have succeeded, but how have you done it? You've done it with the circumstances and the talents and the life that God has given you. And this is why, this is why the Bible says over and over and over again, your money is not your money. It is God's money. Every penny belongs to Him. Now that is... how. How different, how countercultural is that as a way of thinking about money? See, you know what happens when you begin to think about your money like that? It changes what you do with your money. And that's the second point. Jesus wants to transform what we do with our money. Let's get back to the story that he tells for just a moment. So, when this manager finds out that his master has learned about his mismanagement, and he's going to be fired. What does he do? He comes up with a plan. And here's his plan. He knows that very soon he's about to be out of a job. And so what is he going to need? He is going to need some relationships that can come through for him. And so what does he do? He goes to all of these people that owe his master a debt, and he begins to negotiate with them. And all of it is to their advantage by the way. And so verse 5 says this, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. 
Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. Now, most, most commentators say that a money manager like this operated similar to a tax collector. If you were here last week, we talked about this. Tax collectors worked for the Romans. Uh, and what the Romans basically said was, look, we want you to collect X amount of money from people, and anything that you collect over X amount, you get to keep for yourself. And so these managers did the same thing. They would kind of bake in their own fees to the debts that they were collecting. And so what, 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 what most commentators say is what this manager is doing when he's slashing all of these debts, when he's kind of giving them all of these discounts on what they owe, he's actually cutting out the portion of money that, uh, that was his own fee. And, and, and here's something to note about this. This would have meant significant financial loss for him. I mean, these are large debts. 900 gallons of olive oil? I, I don't know olive oil. That's a stinking lot of olive oil. Uh, it's actually, I think it's somewhere around three years of wages of olive oil. A thousand bushels of wheat? That's about eight years wages. What is he doing? He is cutting out 50% in the first, 20% in the second. I mean, he is losing major money in this. And this is where it gets interesting. Because in verse 8, Jesus commends him. He lifts him up. This guy who's kind of done all of these shady things, Jesus lifts him up and he says, here's someone to be like when it comes to your money. And he said, well, gosh, is Jesus commending dishonest practice? No. Notice this in, uh, where Jesus says in verse 8, he's not commending him for his dishonesty. He commends him for his shrewdness. That word means wise. It means sensible. Jesus says, look, this man, he made a wise, sensible investment by giving up short-term financial gain and putting his investment into future relationships which are actually more valuable in the long term. I, just, will you think about this for just a moment? Isn't this what everyone is trying to do with their money? They're trying to make wise investments to put their money into things that will increase, into things that will last, into things that will make our lives richer and fuller. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying, can we just be sensible about this for just a moment? What is it that's really going to last? I mean, what is it that's, that's really going to make your life richer and fuller? You know, the, the story of humanity it is our endless, misdirected search to answer that question. That we are putting our money into all of these things that we think are the answer, and they're not. Charlemagne, who was a, he was a great French emperor and king, he's kind of on everybody's top ten list of the wealthiest people in history. And when archaeologists discovered his tomb, they found something really shocking because in and amongst all of the treasures of his kingdom, he's surrounded by money and gold and tributes, sat Charlemagne, his, his, his bony skeleton. 
and he was enthroned in royal dress. And on his lap was a Bible. And it was open to Mark chapter 8. And his, his, his bony finger was pointing to verse 36. You know what Mark 8, 36 is? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet lose their soul? I mean, someone, most of us, you know, we don't, we don't have it all. We think if we can get it all, then we'll be satisfied. And here's someone who, who had it all, thought he had it all, and in the end declares to the world that he had nothing. Jim Carrey said it this way, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Status, homes, riches, cars, fame, savings accounts. Jesus is saying, let's be, let's be sensible about this. Let's just think about this for just a moment. None of these things last forever. You know what lasts forever? People. People last forever. And so Jesus says this, I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, see money doesn't last forever, it's going to be gone one day. When it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. If you want to put your money into something that will last, here's what Jesus is saying, put it into people. Use your money to meet people's needs, to bring healing to people whose lives are broken. To, to see people come to know Jesus so that they can be friends with you forever. That's what Jesus is saying. I mean, here is something really amazing to think about. We started this church three years ago. And there have been people who have, they've become Christians through sitting in this room. And some of you are in this room this morning. This is, this is the, the room, this is the church where you first came to know and trust in Christ and to believe these things. But you know what? This church, it, it would not exist without hundreds of people who three years ago gave a lot of money so that we could start this church. Hundreds of people who gave $2 million so that we could buy this building two years ago. And you see, here, here's the point. You're going to meet those people one day. Some of you, you have met Jesus in this room, and you're going to meet those people one day, and you're going to be able to say, you know what? Your generosity changed my life. Let me just connect points one and two here before we move on. When you begin to understand that your money is not your money, but it's God's money, when you begin to think about your money that way, it changes what you do with your money. You give it away to the poor, to the church, to other ministries. You invest it not just in temporary things, but in eternal things and in the work of God's kingdom. And in fact, the Bible would go so far as to say this, if you fail to give, that it's not just being stingy or uncharitable, it is being unethical. That it's not just a lack of compassion, but it's a lack of integrity. Why? Why? Because it's not your money. It's God's money. 
You're a steward. That means you can't do with it whatever you want. You do what God wants. So what does God want you and me to do with our money? Well, let me just get practical here for just a moment. God wants you to give generously. Throughout the Old Testament, God's kind of the standard command for giving was the tithe, 10%. But when you come to the New Testament, it never says that. It never explicitly lays out the percentage. And some of you are like, sweet. Because <laughs> I'm thinking a little lower. I'm off the hook. Let me tell you why you're not off the hook. Do you think that the New Testament's silent on a percentage, silence on a percentage, is a sign that you're required to give more or to give less? Why would you assume less? Why would you not assume more? He said, man, 10%. That's a lot of money. Well, remember this. All of it is God's. It's all, 100% of it is God's. You know what God does? He says, hey, I'm going to let you keep 90. How about that? Is that a good deal? And I'm asking you to give 10. To give generously to the work of my kingdom. God wants you to give generously. Here's kind of the second application. He wants you to give sacrificially. I mean, listen, the manager in this parable, he foregoes a huge sum of money, an amount that certainly would have changed his lifestyle. And here's the question for you. Do you, do you live in such a way that you have to say no to some purchases because you are giving towards other things? See, are, are, your, are your spending habits, here's something challenging to think about, are your spending habits ch shaped by your giving habits? Or are your giving habits shaped by your spending habits? God wants you to be generous. He wants us to be generous. You know, one of my hopes, one of my great hopes for this church is that we would be known in this city not for our building, and not for our sermons, and not for our music, but that we would be known for our generosity. What if when people in this city, when they thought of our church, the first thing that they talked about was how generous we are? What if, what if there are people in the city who said, you know, there's this church on the corner of 17th and Franklin. And those people believe some pretty crazy stuff. They think a guy got up and he was walking around 2,000 years ago. And I'm not, I don't, I don't really believe that. But they are the most generous people in this city. I mean, wouldn't you want to be a part of a church like that? I want to be a part of a church like that. You know, this year, we were able to give away, we're, we're three years old, you kind of throw a COVID year in there, so we did virtual church online, which is kind of weird, uh, but praise God we were able to do it. Uh, you know, but we were able to give away $60,000 this year to, uh, to people in need, people in this church, people in this city, to ministries in this city. And, you know, what if we could give away twice that amount next year? 
What if that's how invested we were in this place? And you see, the question is, what is going to get us there? What is going to, friends, I, let me just tell you, I am not on top of the mountain. I feel I'm higher than you this morning. I should be preaching this sermon from the floor. I, I am not kind of shouting down to you as someone who has it all together. I struggle to be generous. I really struggle to give my money away. When my wife and I got married, she said, uh, hey, you know, how much, how much uh, have you been giving away every month? And I'm like, well, you know, you mean like every month? Because it's some months, you know? And, and it has been the healthiest thing for me. I mean, I'm so grateful that God has put someone in my life who, who is more generous than I am. It has been so freeing for me, but I am still in process. So I'm not preaching to you this morning as someone who's got it all together. So the question is, what is going to get you and me, what is going to transform us to become the kind of generous people that God has called us to be, to think like this about our money, to, to do this with our money? Well, that brings us to the last point. Because Jesus is not just trying, he is not just trying to change how you think about your money. He's not just trying to change what you do with your money. He is trying to change how you feel about your money. And that's actually the key to the whole thing. Look what Jesus says in verse 13 at the very end. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this, friends, this is the language of affection. Jesus says you cannot love God and money. He's saying this isn't just about how you should think about money or what you should do with money. This is about what you love. And, and let me tell you this, Jesus does not talk like this about anything else. I mean, the way he talks about money, it is so unique. He doesn't talk like this about anything else. Money, it is the, the biggest threat to your relationship with God. And that is true whether you have it or whether you don't. Whether you have it or whether you don't, which this room consists of both of those people, people who live in plenty and people who live in scarcity. But money is the biggest threat to our relationship with God, and here's why. The problem is not so much money. The Bible never says money is a sin. Never. Never, ever, ever. The problem is not so much money. The problem is what money reveals. Money always reveals what you most love. Think about it this way. What are the things to which your money most effortlessly flows? You know, it's interesting. I, I get a lot of requests uh, for financial support from, uh, from other ministries, from other churches, from, from people who are doing ministry, from nonprofits. And my response always goes something like this. Thanks for reaching out. Let me pray about it. But it's really interesting I've never been in a store and seen a piece of clothing <laughs> that I really liked and thought, I think I'll go home and pray about that. Let me pray about that shirt. I'm going to go home and just pray on that shirt for a little while. I've never done that. 
My, my money flows to those things without hesitation. And you know why? It's because I care a lot about status and beauty. I mean, not that I have much of it. I mean, <laughs> but I crave it. Because I think it's part of where you, where I might find meaning and significance in life. So how about you? Where does your money flow most easily? Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's homes. Maybe it's professional advancement. Maybe it's fitness. Maybe it's substances. See, where your money goes tells you what you love. It tells you what you worship. Maybe it's your kids. It is so easy for you to write big, fat checks to send them to great schools or great camps or to give them the tutor or whatever that they need. Are those things bad? Absolutely not. But you have to kind of check your heart and say, why is that so easy? Is it because this is where I actually find meaning and significance in life is through my kids? Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, I'm not any of those people. You know, praise God, I'm not nearly as materialistic or superficial as all these other people that this guy's talking about this morning. Because I don't spend money. No, no, no. I save money. But why do you save? Because you worship security and control. And you think, as long as I have enough money in the bank, then I'm safe. And you believe that, of course, until suffering comes into your life. And you realize money cannot protect you from those things. Money always reveals what we most love, what we most worship, and we are all worshiping something. We're all loving something. And the reason that we fail to be generous is because we love other things more than we love God. And so the only way we're going to become generous is by loving God more than we love money or the things that money can give to us. This is why Jesus wants to change how you feel about your money. He wants to change your affections. He wants to change what you love. Because that's what enables you to give generously and sacrificially. But here's the question this morning. What is going to get you and me to love God like that? You know, I mean, how helpful is it For me to stand up here this morning and say, okay, here's the final point. Love God more. I want you to to do it. Just love God more. You know what? That does not work because that's not how love works. Love cannot be commanded. Love cannot be coerced. No, your heart has to be melted. And the question is, what could possibly do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's writing to them about generosity. And he says this in verse 8, I am not commanding you, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty 
might become rich. Now, here, listen to what Paul's doing. Paul does not appeal to their head and how they think about money. And he doesn't appeal to their will and what they should do with their money. He appeals to their heart and what they should feel. He appeals to love. See, love is how you become generous. But he doesn't appeal, listen to this, he does not appeal to their love for God. He appeals to God's love for them. That though Jesus Christ was rich, he had all the wealth he could ever want. Yet for your sakes, Paul says, he gave it all away. All because of love. And you see, what is going to get you and me to be generous? You know what the answer is? It is what we see at this table. It is Jesus Christ who is the one true steward who gave up the riches of heaven and he came into this world and he went onto a cross so that you could be his friend forever. That's what Jesus was doing. He was, in coming to this earth and in living and in dying and rising again, he was making for himself friends in heaven. And he did not just give up his riches, but he gave up his life. And friends, this is how much God loves you. It is not about your love for God. That will never make you generous. No. What will make you generous is when you come to see the depths to which the Lord of heaven and earth has set his affections on you, and he has spared nothing to have you. Do you see that? Do you know that? Have you experienced that? If not, you can today. Look to him and look to his love for you. And the more that you do, the more you will love him and not your money and the things that, you, that it can give you. And then you will, you'll find, you know what? You will finally be free from money. You'll finally be free to be generous with others like God has been generous to you. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this table, for, for, the, for the good news of a God who looks at us and says, I will give up everything to have you. A God who says, of all the treasures that I have, you are my most valued possession. Father, that is... That is so, if we are honest with ourselves, that may be the hardest thing for us to believe. Not just that you're real, not just that you exist, but that you would love us like this. Would you help us today 
as we come to this table, as we eat this bread, and as we drink this cup, to drink deeply of your love for us through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.